so good morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of messages that we've called uh, Ingredients for Better You. And I, I have intended for several weeks to take a one-week break this week and to do a standalone message. And uh, I had thought that that message would be a, a ting off on that. You know, that's part of the reason that we, we did this video. Just give us a chance to brag about some of us who are doing some of this and encourage others of us and give us some practical handles on how to do that. I was going to talk about this morning Acts 5.42, one of our key verses for the year, and that verse is, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And I was going to talk about the uh, constancy of that, you know, that it was every day, and that's really the call on our lives as well. And then I was going to talk about how their activity extended across every environment, you know, when they gathered together. And that was going to give me an opportunity to tee off on our small groups and our need for community a little bit, because our small groups are starting this week, but also then house to house. So in their everyday lives, it, it, this activity was constant. It was across all of their uh, atmospheres, and then uh, I was going to talk about what the activity was, and the activity is essentially bragging about Jesus and telling his story over and over again everywhere they went, and there were going to be some good stories sprinkled in, and I was praying and hoping that it would be inspiring and exciting. It would give us some practical handles about how to do some of that ourselves, about how to, you know, still remain connected with one another, but also be, be serving those around us and I guess Thursday night through Friday and Saturday, I just, God took me in a completely different direction. So we're not going to do that sermon today. Instead, uh, we're going to talk about something more fundamental, more basic. It's a message that I've felt God has put on my heart repeatedly over the years since I've been uh, pastoring at Gateway, since I've been in the suburbs. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, the early part of our ministry, those of you who know Diane and I well, you know that we spent the early part of our ministry in an urban context, in a poor neighborhood in, in Boston. And uh, we were there for 12 or 13 years, and uh, just wonderful time of growth for us and, and great ministry there. I got to know the city very, very well. We thought we'd live our lives there, and then you know, God led us elsewhere, and he led us here. So when we started Gateway, and some of you have heard me tell this a number of times over the years, when we started Gateway, one of the first things that we did is uh, we went to hundreds of homes, thousands, really, in neighborhoods in Herndon, as far as Reston, Sterling, several neighborhoods in Ashburn, the entire neighborhood of South Riding. And by the way, at the time, there were only 500 homes in South Riding, and nothing else was here. A uh, couple of neighborhoods in Chantilly knocked on their door, and I was surveying them. I wasn't looking for people to join our church. I was literally trying to get a feel for who you were and, and who, the, who lived in the suburbs. Knock, knock, knock. They'd answer the door. Hi, I'm Ed Allen. I've flashed my toothy grin. I'm here to plan a church and just wondering if you've got five minutes, I'd like to ask you seven questions. I promise it won't be any longer than that. And you were shockingly friendly. And uh, usually you answered my questions, and I kept little stats on all of this, and I had literally seven questions, and when the, when the interview ran longer than five minutes, it was your fault, because you wanted to make comments, and some of you did. And here's one of the things that I learned. I think I felt this because of the, the neighborhood that Diane and I had lived in for 
12 or 13 years because where we had just come from, you know, and then moving to the suburbs of Northern Virginia was a little bit of a shock. And I realized that uh, you guys like your lives. You just want them a little better. And the other thing that struck me is often that's not a deal that Jesus makes with us. I think this morning will explain that. So we're going we're gonna to talk today about something that is really, really fundamental. We might even call today Christianity 101, but I've decided to give the title today, How to Satisfy the Human Heart. So today we're going to talk about how to satisfy the human heart. Before we do, one more story. There's a guy who, he worked for one of the big engineering firms in our area doing defense contract stuff. And, uh, he had a good engineering degree from Virginia Tech, met his sweetheart's junior year at Virginia Tech. A couple years after he got out of Tech, they, uh, they got married and a uh, really good job. He'd done an internship at this company uh, after his junior year at, at Tech and they were impressed with him and he did well at Tech, so they hired him. Um, and uh, did well, right on schedule. You know, he's working on a small part of one of these giant projects that they have. And uh, eventually, again, right on schedule, after a few years, they kind of put him in charge of a, a, a small part of that project. And right on schedule, he and his wife uh, had two and a half kids. And uh, right on schedule, they bought a townhome in Centerville. And then uh, after the, several years into his career at this company, he had a couple of buddies that he had worked with. They'd gone on to other places. One who was working with him at the time, and they all got together having drinks one night, and they, they suggested just kind of brainstorming, why don't we start something ourselves? And eventually one conversation led to another, and they did. They decided to start a smaller shop with just themselves, and they could be their own bosses, and it went really well, right on schedule. They said, uh, we can't go for the giant contracts, you know, we can't compete with the big boys, but we can go for small and medium-sized contracts, and they got several small and medium-sized contracts, and then right on schedule, one year they had a fantastic year, and they, they brought in several bigger contracts, and they also decided, let's expand beyond just the government sector, so it meant for him that he had to travel some, but he didn't mind it because a business was going really well, and right on schedule, they had such a good year, one year, they were able to give themselves raises and a giant bonus at the end of the year, and right on schedule, they were able to skip the medium-sized home, even though there are no medium-sized homes in our area. They were able to skip the medium-sized home and move into one of the larger models in Willisford. They moved in, and things were going well right on schedule, and then this past year, he had a really tough year. Just uh, the company had a tougher year, and it was a weird year. Got to spend a lot of time with the kids. He was working remotely mostly, but uh, still, it was a tough year. And there are probably a couple of other factors. He has a neighbor who's from Pakistan, who's a, a Muslim, and uh, he's a really, really good guy. And through this year, they got to be friends. And this was there were just some things about this relationship and about this guy in particular that were confusing for him. And then. Uh, his father got cancer. He's in remission now, but um, not doing really well. And uh, he lost the narrative. He kind of got lost in what was next and where he was headed and what was important. When he was 31, he knew the narrative exactly. But now at 43, 
he'd lost this, the narrative. So he decided that he would go talk to Jesus. And we have that conversation recorded for us. And I'm going to read it now. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10, or you can look on mygateway.life, and it's on mygateway.life. It will also be on the screen. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And I want you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word, those of you who are here. If you're at home, you can stand as well. Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered provocatively. No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, well, with people this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, well, we've left everything to follow you. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So, Father, we pray that you'll open our hearts this morning, because we need to hear you. Massage your truth into it. Penetrate past our defenses and our assumptions and speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, if we listen, we hear the echoes of the exact same refrain ringing from the lives and testimonies of people who followed God throughout the ages. We hear it, for example, from the Apostle Paul who said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. We also hear it from the first followers who left everything to follow Jesus. We hear it in the testimony of the author of the Hebrews who said, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles it, and let's, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's, let's fix our eyes on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith. We see it in the lives of the Christian martyrs like the aged second century bishop named Polycarp who when he was asked to recant his faith or be fed to the lions, he said, 86 years I have served my king. He has never forsaken me. I will not forsaken him now. Polycarp was eaten alive. We hear it in the testimony of the great 4th century writer Augustine of Hippo who said, all plenty, which is not my God, is poverty to me. We see it in the life of the 13th century monk named Francis of Assisi who gave all of his considerable wealth, gave it away in order to more fully follow the teachings of Christ. Over and over again, Throughout the ages, we see and hear the echoes of this same refrain, and that refrain is, in summary, singular devotion to God is the only thing which fully satisfies the human heart. In a nutshell, this is Jesus' message to the rich young man and to his disciples and to us as well. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Singular devotion to God fully satisfies the human heart and nothing else can. This means that God has no part-time employees. With God, there are no other allegiances. All of our loves, all other things that, to which we are devoted flow out of our love for God. As soon as any other love competes with preeminence for God, with God, then we no longer love God. And the natural life-giving love that flows from, from God to all other things, it is contaminated. And our hearts are no longer satisfied. And all of our other loves are eventually soured. This isn't a rule you must obey. This is simply the law of human nature. This is how we were designed. Jesus himself said it this way. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you don't get close to this and hope it's good enough. It's all in one direction or the other. Now, if ever there was an individual that deserved credit for getting close, it was the guy in our story. He has it all. He's wealthy. Luke, another one of the biographers of Jesus, tells us that he was a, he was a ruler, Luke's word. So he's a person of influence, and he's all of this at a young age. Plus, he seems to be a really good guy. Jesus is impressed with his earnestness by the young man's own testimony. He's an excellent father. He's an excellent husband. He's a son. He volunteered in the community. He was a faithful churchgoer and an honest neighbor. And he doesn't seem to be bragging. No one there denies any of this. And yet, in spite of this wonderful resume, this very successful, influential young man is empty. His experience confirms what we already know deep down inside, and this is big. Being good is not enough. Being good is not enough. In search for real heart satisfaction and for eternal connection, being good is not enough. Mark Twain once responded to a question about heaven by saying, if being good were really the essential requirement for heaven, then your dog would probably go there, but you certainly would not. With what can only be described as desperation, this young man interrupts Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Even the question is commendable. 
This, there was a raging debate in Jesus' day about eternal life. One, one of the most influential religious parties of his day, known as the Pharisees, they didn't believe in eternity at all. This young man rightly sides with those who did believe in heaven and hell. And so he wants to know what's the essential thing that he must do to inherit the former and avoid the latter. Certainly this same question is asked hundreds, perhaps thousands of times every day. But not always with the same sincerity. In the case of the rich young ruler, it's, it's clear. His interest is genuine. And it seems that he's spent considerable time thinking about this. But, and this is important, sincerity is not enough. That's a popular belief in our culture today, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But Hitler was no less sincere and probably more so than most of us, but surely he was terribly wrong. The young people who followed Charles Manson were more sincere than I've ever been, but they were blindly wrong and horribly so. The claim that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely ignores the fact that people can be sincerely wrong. This young man was a good man, but being good is not enough. This young man was very sincere, but sincerity is not enough. Something was missing, and he knew it. His heart was not satisfied. Why do you call me good? Jesus provoked, as if to say, don't use a label like good teacher lightly, young man. See, Jesus, throughout his life, he never let anyone label him without challenging, challenging their real knowledge of him. He wasn't interested in labels. He didn't care about titles. He didn't care if someone was a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He didn't bother if you were liberal or conservative, immaterial. He didn't care if someone called you high priest or rabbi or doctor. No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. Um, don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Well, teacher, the young man said, look, I, I, grew up in a, I grew up in a really great church outside of Richmond. And I went to Sunday school and I got confirmed. I've always believed in God. I've done all these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus said, if you miss everything else, my friend, don't miss this. It seems to me that we should listen carefully at this point in the story. There may not be another figure in the entire New Testament who more exactly represents us. We've already established that he's a solid citizen, probably a churchgoer. Like I said, I believe he lives in our area. In fact, I think I met him one Sunday. A few weeks ago, he came to visit our service We'd started meeting in person, as you know, and he and his family were pretty brave. They came here by themselves one Sunday, decided to stop by. I could tell he was a really good guy, and I could also tell that our service had stirred something in him a bit. You know, I think without realizing it, he was hoping that this might fill in the missing piece for him. Thanks for that message this morning, he said through his mask on his way out. You're welcome, I said. 
It really struck a chord, he said. Why is that, I said. Well, I've just been wondering about things lately. Some stuff has happened. It feels like I might be missing something. And I've been wondering about the real meaning of it all and about, about eternity and stuff. Well, one thing you lack. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. And then you won't be investing in stuff here, but you'll be investing in heaven. Then come follow me. Could you do this? Have you done this? Does your life and your lifestyle fall in line with Jesus' challenge? In his book, Future Grace, Pastor John Piper says this. This is, this is great. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. So what do we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God? It's a long list, but let's do some highlights. We drink to withdraw. We lust to forget. We seek approval either from the opinions of others or from the success of our own children to validate. We entertain to escape. We accumulate. There's something interesting about this list to me. There may be a hint here as to why the pursuit of money is so often, because this is not a good list, but there's a hint here as to why the pursuit of money is so often singled out as an evil by God. All of these things, and many more, have the power to distract us from, from real satisfaction. And all of them take away from our devotion to God and inhibit our satisfaction ultimately. But money, money often does more than distract. The accumulation of possession actually makes a counterfeit claim to satisfy our hearts. You know the old saying, life is a game and the, the one with the most toys in the end wins? This silly proverb reveals the adulterous nature of accumulation. Gathering wealth has become, for many people in our culture, the defining essence, the very purpose of their lives. For most of us, this isn't conscious. This is, this is kind of it's just like the operating system that runs in the background behind all of the software that we lay on top. We don't even fully realize it. The Catholic priest Henry Nowen once said, wealth takes away the sharp edge of our moral sensitivities. Wealth takes away the sharp edges of our moral sensitivities and allows a comfortable confusion about sin and virtue. For Jesus, the edge was very sharp and very clear Love God preeminently and your heart finds full satisfaction. Love anything else preeminently and you cannot. Comfort confuses that sharp edge. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this point, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
We have this habit at Gateway, we call it groupletizing. Whenever we do it, the people at Gateway cheer. They beg for more, he said sarcastically. And what we do is we have people turn their chairs toward one another and we re- literally ask one another questions on Sunday morning because the stuff that we talk about on Sunday morning, really it needs to be massaged. You know, you can't just hear this stuff to live it out. It needs to be massaged. And this is also an excuse for us to connect with one another because we believe that's key at Gateway. We believe connecting, it's all about connecting to God and connecting to one another. So at this point, if we were in a normal service and not all masked up and we didn't have snow outside today and all that other stuff is true, I would have us groupletize and I would turn toward one another and I would ask us a series of questions that would try to be aimed, you know, to be approachable questions. We're not going to ask anything embarrassing, but they would try to be aimed at getting us to identify what our real priorities are. Because I'm afraid that the rich young ruler's heart dissatisfaction is more a threat to us than we realize. I would try to encourage us to examine just how sharp the edge is in our thinking. At this point in the exchange, Jesus looked around to see what impression that this encounter had made on the disciples. And he realized they were completely disoriented. Wait, Jesus, wait, this guy is very wealthy. He's very influential in the area. He's a really good guy. You sent him away? I mean, couldn't we have gone with a softer approach? Do you realize how important this guy could have been to our movement? And Jesus' explanation didn't help. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. It's not really much of a stretch for us to understand how deeply disorienting this was for the disciples. You see, in their minds, rich people lived lives of ease and comfort. And in their minds, living a life of ease and comfort is a much better way to live. Therefore, in their minds, rich people must be extremely blessed by God. It's just math. And then along comes Jesus explaining that it doesn't really work that way. It's as if Jesus was saying two plus two no longer equals four. In Jesus' mind, this rich young man is not an object of admiration or envy. He is to be pitied. Probably Jesus sees the potential for him were it not for the impediment of his wealth. Clearly, single-minded focus, singular devotion is Jesus' concern for this young man and for his followers and for us because Singular devotion to God is the key to having a satisfied heart. Over the long run, nothing else will satisfy. Any impediment, any distraction must be removed on the way to your heart's satisfaction on the way to the kingdom. But most especially wealth. So much so that to have it makes the way to the kingdom of God almost impossible When Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God, he means rule of God, or he means God's control over your life, over the universe, and you connecting to that. In other words, it's more difficult for a rich person to be controlled by God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. 
Rich people can be spiritual, and they often are. Rich people can be very good people. They can be deeply sincere people, but it's very difficult for them to be controlled by God. More specifically, maybe, it's difficult for them to relinquish control to God. There are too many competing influences and too many competencies. So, are we rich people? This would be another great time for groupletizing. <laughs> we wouldn't ask one another our annual income, but we would try to find some ways to explore this question. I mean it. I mean it. I, th I, think, I think we should face this. Are we rich people? And I would say, decidedly yes. I know that some of you... Uh, many people who are connecting to Gateway grew up in India or in East Africa or in South America or in the Philippines or in a very different part of the United States. I would guess that you agree with me. We are most definitely rich people. So can you understand the disciples' despair? I don't think they were rich men with the, with the possible exception of maybe Matthew. But, but they had been trained to believe that the wealthy were blessed by God. So, they certainly wanted to be rich men. And now Jesus has told them that two plus two does not equal four. So they said to each other, who then can be saved? This doesn't even make sense, Jesus. Who has the blessed life, Jesus, if not the rich? Who has the eternal kind of relationship with God, if not the rich? I think Jesus must have realized their despair, so he offered some comfort. But even his comfort has a challenge in it. Jesus said, with, with people operating under their own power, controlling their own lives, pursuing their own set of devotions, it's impossible. You can't do it. But with God, with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And Peter doesn't have the courage to finish the question, does he? What about us? What's, what does that mean for us? What's there going to be in it for us? And then Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, guys. No one who's left their home or their family or their life, no one who has decided to place all of that second for me and for the message that I'm bringing will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age your heart's satisfaction. And in the age to come, eternity, they'll receive eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And the more we hear Jesus talk about the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the more we recognize that it's mysterious. Almost everything Jesus talked about defies common sense. It's completely contradictory to our assumptions. For Jesus, the way to find your life is by losing it. The way to receive is to give. The way to lead is to serve. The last will be first. And the way to possess all that you need in this life is to possess nothing at all. There's an American Indian proverb which says, be careful of owning, for whatever you possess also possesses you. So what do you possess? Look, it isn't poverty that Jesus commends. He's commending absolute freedom 
from the urgency and worry of possessing. It isn't comfort that he's denouncing. It's the radical, life-defining devotion to comfort as a means of securing our lives and satisfying our hearts. That's what he's denouncing. Jesus doesn't commend the act of giving away all that we have. This could actually be one more trick to prove how good we are. No, Jesus commends the heart which has been set free from the need to accumulate. He applauds the heart which is free to follow him and to be completely controlled by God. Singular devotion to God is the doorway to an eternal relationship with God. And singular devotion to God fully satisfies the human heart and nothing else can. We have to make one more observation about all of this before we wrap up this morning. Please don't miss the fact that Jesus in this encounter once again puts himself at the center of this whole process. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, he says to the young man. Then come follow me. So let's imagine ourselves this morning, our life in a, being lived in a very broad hallway. And it's full of doors that lead to a variety of opportunities. And some of the doors are marked by small placards, and some of them are lit by bright neon signs, advertisements. And then we hear various voices encouraging and instructing and enticing us, in some cases, choose this door or choose that door. And at some point, we see Jesus. He points toward the far end of the hallway, and his smile is warm and inviting, but the direction he points is less attractive at first glance. He says, one of these doors offers what you're really looking for. Which one, Jesus, we ask? Follow me, he says. I'll take you. But first, you have to, all, you have to leave all of these alone. It's not easy, but it's not much more complicated than that. Have you placed your future completely into his hands? Have you decided to forego all other loves so that you might be fully devoted to this one? Some of you have, and I wish we could hear your stories this morning. I've heard some of them, and they're awesome. I wish you could tell us what this has looked like for you in your life. For the rest of us, have you recognized that your life has been self-ruled and that something is missing? Have you tried, are you trying now, other means of satisfying your heart? Are you ready to decide now? You can't be born into this. You can't be good enough or sincere enough. You have to decide. And here's how. Jesus I recognize this morning there are ways that I've made a mess of this. I have tried a lot of things to satisfy my heart and I have sinned against you. I've peeked into every door I could find and I've thrown some of them wide open. I've rummaged around inside. 
I have thought deep down inside that it was about other things, that if I could just get X or Y or Z, then, then that dissatisfaction would fully and forever go away. I'm so sorry, and this morning I, I want to ask your forgiveness. I humbly repent. And I want to turn the reins of my life over to you. I want to follow you. No matter how long the hallway, no matter how dark the door, I want to follow you. I recognize this morning that you are the only source of heart satisfaction, and I'll leave all others. In Jesus' name. Now, if you decided anything this morning, I want you to go to mygateway.life and let us know. Go to the prayer card and let us know you decided something this morning or you'd like to talk about it more. For many of us, we made that life-changing decision last year or 15 or 24 years ago. But we need to reaffirm that decision daily. We need to rededicate ourselves to the business of following him daily. And it may mean that we need to rid ourselves of some distractions. I have a friend who uh, jumped in headfirst to this journey a few years ago. At some point along the way, as he was making the full transition to full devotion to God, he stumbled into this story and he asked me one time, do you think that message is for me? <laughs> I genuinely don't think it was or is. This person has become a great friend and is extraordinarily generous and is free with their possessions, by the way. It's almost as if they, uh, they don't possess them at all. But I do think it was commendable and important for him to seriously ask that question. And I find it striking that among a group of people as rich as we are, that none of us seems to ever feel like Jesus is literally saying this to us. We all find some out. I think we probably shouldn't be so quick to dismiss this message. Because anything that distracts, anything that hinders, anything that holds us back from being fully devoted will ultimately rob our heart's satisfaction and may, may it threatens to prevent us from having an eternal kind of relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know how you have spoken this morning, but we, we believe you have, and I pray in Jesus' name, whatever you have done, however you're stirring, that you would seal it up, confirm it, secure it. And God, as we, uh, as we make our way into the week, whatever we're saying in our hearts right now, if by Thursday we have forgotten, then we give you permission to remind us. We want to be all in with you. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.